Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast <clears throat> for Book 10, Chapter 25, A Very Tense Moment, The Calm Before the Storm. Ripster 66 says, Prince Andre's monologue really gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? We've been with him through battles, grief, love, found and lost, and now on the eve of battle he clearly sees the insanity of war for what it is, sanctioned murder. He believes the patriotic hearts of the Russian soldiers will win the day, and they certainly feel they have more to lose and more to fight for. His thoughts on Natasha were intriguing. Sounds like he may regret rejecting her. Interesting. Maybe. Did he really reject her? Didn't she kind of uh, be unfaithful? And It's not really a rejection. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it does seem like he's missing her in the, uh, a lot. Kara Kikar says, regrets. Andre has had a few. Too late now, though. I find the contrast between his idolation of his home and the horror of war interesting. We all know that Andre's father was a pretty, a petty tyrant at home. While Andre can think back to Bald Hills with nostalgia, it is a place... Still a place where the elder Volkonsky terrorised Maya and lived off the drudgery of the indentured serfs. The idea that there was some pastoral paradise peace is false. But here, at the end, Andre seems to need that vision to sustain him. Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says this was a fantastic chapter that really caught, cut right to the bone. Andre lost me at the end there. What does he mean he didn't understand at all? He says that he understood her. Ah, uh, he's talking about Anatole, the girl that Natasha kind of ditched him for. He's saying Anatole didn't understand her. He didn't appreciate her the way that he did. Rye Bread Egg says, I really enjoyed this chapter. It's go time for the Russians. Oh yeah, it's about to hit the fan. And Pierre is just kind of Bumbling around in the middle of it, in classic Pierre style. Um, Alright, I think we're ready for this. More excitement, here we go. Chapter 26. On, the, on August the 25th, the eve of the Battle of Borodino, Monsieur de Basset prefect of the French Emperor's Palace arrived at Napoleon's quarters at Veluvo with Colonel Favier, the former from Paris and the latter from Madrid. Donning his court uniform, Monsieur de Basset ordered a box he had brought for the Emperor to be carried before him and entered the first compartment of Napoleon's tent, where he began opening the box while conversing with Napoleon's aides-de-camp who surrounded him. Fabvier, not entering the tent, remained at the entrance, talking to some generals of his acquaintance. The Emperor Napoleon had not yet left his bedroom and was finishing his toilet. Slightly snoring and grunting, he presented now his back and now his plump, hairy chest to the brush with which his valet was rubbing him down. Another valet, with his finger on over the mouth of a bottle, was sprinkling eau de cologne on the emperor's pampered body with an expression which seemed to say that he alone knew where and how much eau de cologne should be sprinkled. Napoleon's short hair was wet and matted on the forehead, but his face, tough, 
Puffy and Yellow expressed physical satisfaction. Go on, harder, go on, he muttered to the valet who was rubbing him, slightly twitching and grunting. An aide-de-camp who had entered the bedroom to report to the Emperor the number of prisoners taken in yesterday's action was standing by the door after delivering his message, awaiting permission to withdraw. Napoleon, frowning, looked at him from under his brows. No prisoners, said he, repeating the aide-de-camp's words. They are forcing us to exterminate them. So much the worse for the Russian army. Go on, harder, harder, he muttered, hunching his back and presenting his fat shoulders. All right, let Monsieur de Basset enter, and Favier too, he said, nodding to the aide-de-camp. Yes, sire. And the aide-de-camp disappeared through the door of the tent. Two valets rapidly dressed his majesty, and wearing the blue uniform of the guards, he went with firm, quick steps to the reception room. De Basset's hands... Meanwhile, were busily engaged arranging the present he had brought from the Empress on two chairs directly in front of the entrance, but Napoleon had dressed and come out with such unexpected rapidity that he had not time to finish arranging the surprise. Napoleon noticed at once what they were about and guessed that they were not ready. He did not wish to deprive them of the pleasure of giving him a surprise, so he pretended not to see de Basset and called Fabio to give to him, Listening silently and with a stern frown to what Fabio told him of the heroism and devotion of his troops fighting at Salamanca, at the other end of Europe, with but one thought, to be worthy of their emperor, and but one fear, to fail to please him. The result of that battle had been deplorable. Napoleon made ironic remarks during Fabio's account, as if he had not expected that matters could go otherwise in his absence. I must make up for that in Moscow, said Napoleon. I'll see you later, he added, and summoned de Basset, who by that time had prepared the surprise, having placed something on the chairs and covered it with a cloth. De Basset bowed low with that courtly French bow which only the old retainers of the Bourbons knew how to make, and approached him presenting an envelope. Napoleon turned to him gaily and pulled his ear, you have hurried here, I am very glad. Well, what is Paris saying? he asked, suddenly changing his former stern expression for a most cordial tone. Sire, all Paris regret your absence, replied de Basset, who was, as was proper. But though Napoleon knew that de Basset had to say something of this kind, and though in his lucid moments he knew it was untrue, he was, uh, he was pleased to hear it from him. Again he honoured him by touching his ear. I am very sorry to have made you travel so far, said he. Sire, I expected nothing less than to find you at the gates of Moscow, replied de Basset. Napoleon smiled and, lifting his head absent-mindedly, glanced to the right, and aide de camp approached with gliding steps and offered him a gold snuff-box, which he took. Yes, it is. it has happened quickly. Sorry, yes, it has happened. Luckily for you, he said, raising the open snuff-box to his nose, you are fond of travel, and in three days you will see Moscow. You surely did not expect to see that Asiatic capital. You will have a pleasant journey. De Basset bowed gratefully at this regard for his taste for travel, of which he had not till then been aware. Ha! Huh? What's this? asked Napoleon, noticing that all the courtiers were looking at something concealed under a cloth. With courtly adroitness, de Basset half-turned, and without turning his back to the emperor, retired two steps, twitching off the cloth at the same time, and said, A present to your majesty from the empress. It was a portrait, painted in bright colours by Gerard, 
of the son born to Napoleon by the daughter of the Emperor of Austria, the boy whom, for some reason, everyone called the King of Rome, a very pretty curly-haired boy with a, lock, with a look of the Christ in the Sistine Madonna was depicted playing at the stickball. The ball represented the terrestrial globe and the stick in his hand, other hand a scepter. Though it was not clear what the artist meant to express by depicting the so-called King of Rome spiking the earth with a stick, the allegory apparently seemed to Napoleon, as it had done to all who had seen it in Paris, quite clear and very pleasing. The King of Rome, he said, pointing to the portrait with a grateful, graceful gesture. Admirable. With the natural capacity of an Italian for changing the expression of his face at will, he drew nearer to the portrait and assumed a look of pensive tenderness. He felt that what he now said and did would be historical, and it seemed to him that it would now be best for him, whose grandeur enabled his son to play stickball with the terrestrial globe, to show in contrast that grandeur, the simplest paternal tenderness. His eyes grew dim, he moved forward, glanced around at the chair, which seemed to place itself under him, and sat down on it before the portrait. At a single gesture from him, everyone went out on tiptoe, leaving the great man to himself and his emotion. Having sat still for a while, he touched, himself not knowing why, the thick spot of paint representing the highest light in the portrait, rose, and recalled de Basset and the officer on duty. He ordered the portrait to be carried outside his tent, that the old guard stationed round it might not be deprived of the pleasure of seeing the King of Rome, the son and heir of their adored monarch. And while he was doing Monsieur de Basset the honour of breakfasting with him, they heard, as Napoleon had anticipated, the rapturous cries of the officers and men of the old guard who had run up to see the portrait. Viva l'Empereur! Viva le Roi de Rome! Viva l'Empereur! came those ecstatic cries. After breakfast, Napoleon, in de Basset's presence, dictated his order of the day to the army. Short and energetic, he remarked, when he had read over the proclamation, which he had dictated straight off without corrections, it ran, Soldiers, this is the battle you have so longed for. The victory depends on you. It is essential for us. It will give us all we need, comfortable quarters and a speedy return to our country. Behave as you did at Austerlitz, Friedland, Vitebsk and Smolensk. Let our remote, remotest posterity recall your achievements this day with pride. Let it be said of each of you, he was in the great battle before Moscow. Before Moscow, repeated Napoleon, and inviting Monsieur de Basset, who was fond of travel, to accompany him on his ride, he went out of the tent to where the horses stood saddled. Your Majesty is too kind, replied de Basset, to the invitation to accompany the Emperor. He wanted to sleep, did not know how to ride, and was afraid of doing so. But Napoleon nodded to the traveller, and de Basset had to mount. When Napoleon came out of the tent, the shouting of the guards before his son's portrait grew still louder. Napoleon frowned. Take him away, he said, pointing with a gracefully majestic gesture to the portrait. It is too soon for him to see a field of battle. De Bosset closed his eyes, bowed his head and sighed deeply to indicate how profoundly he valued and comprehended the emperor's words.
All right, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the chapter for you. A little bit of Napoleon action, just lounging around in his luxury war tent and getting paintings of his son ruling the world. Nice, nice to be Napoleon. All right, have your say about that one. Thanks for listening, I'll see you tomorrow.